Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Cameroon denies executing Boko Haram suspects. Iran nuclear talks set to resume in Switzerland and South African cabinet minister killed in car crash. In economics, African seed index raises bigger yield hopes for farmers. And in sports news, Uganda's Thomas Ayeko regains top cross country title. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. At least 25 villagers have been killed during an early morning raid by a suspected herdsman near Nigeria's eastern central Benue state. State police confirmed yesterday's attack, saying several others were injured in the gun and machete attack. No group has claimed responsibility for the assault, but experts oftentimes say the prime suspects of such attacks in the region are gangs from the Fulani herdsmen. The Fulani semi-nomadic cattle herding way of life has led to decades of conflict with farming communities across central and northern Nigeria. Meanwhile, Boko Haram militants have torched homes in Nigeria's northeastern town of Baga, forcing residents to flee. The militants reportedly told residents to leave before they set fire to their homes, ahead of the arrival of Nigerian troops attempting to retake the city. Bama has been in control of the militants since September when it was seized, along with several towns and villages in northeastern Borno, Adamawa and Yobe states, on the border with Chad, Cameroon and Niger. Over the past weeks, Nigerian troops backed by soldiers from Chad, Niger and Cameroon have retaken most of the towns. The United States has urged Sierra Leone's government and its vice president, Samuel Sam Sumana, to resolve their differences. Sam Sumana earlier requested asylum from the U.S., claiming that his life was in danger. He was expelled on the 6th of this month from the ruling All People's Congress Party, which accused him of orchestrating political violence. Sam Sumana asked the U.S. ambassador in Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown, for asylum after soldiers disarmed his security team. The government has not commented on the incident. United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon says the global community needs to turn all of the painful lessons of disasters into new policies for a better future. Ben was drawing the city of Sendai in Japan to reflect on the lessons learned from the Great East Japan earthquake that hit the Tohoku region four years ago. The third UN World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction is currently taking place in Sendai, which is the region's largest city. Stephanie Kutrix reports. The meeting has drawn some 4,000 government and civil society participants to agree on a new framework for managing disaster risk, which will reduce mortality and curb economic losses. 
Ban Ki-moon is calling for an approach that puts people first, especially the elderly, children, women, people with disabilities, and others who are vulnerable. He also said the UN sees 2015 as what he called a seminal year. The world body is crafting a post-2015 development agenda that will replace the Millennium Development Goals. South Africa's Transport Minister Dupont Peters through the Road Traffic Management Corporation and police is investigating the cause of the crash in which Public Service Minister Collins Chabane was killed. Peters has sent her condolences to the families of Chabane and his two bodyguards who died on impact when the vehicle crashed into a truck in South Africa's Limpopo province yesterday morning. Police spokesperson Ronel Otto describes what happened. It is alleged that the driver of a truck made a U-turn in the road um, and the vehicle carrying the minister and his two protectors crashed into it. Um, They died on the scene. The driver of the truck was not injured. um, He was arrested um, on the scene. We've opened a case of culpable homicide um, and our investigations are continuing. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Monday, March the 16th, the 75th day of the year 2015 with 290 days left in the year. Cameroon has strongly denied its military is systematically executing Boko Haram suspects. Human rights groups in the Central African nation have asked the UN to probe war crimes after hundreds of suspects were executed on the country's northern border with Nigeria, a Boko Haram stronghold. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Cameroon's government spokesperson and communication minister, Isa Chiruma Bakari, said reports by rights groups that the country summarily executes Boko Haram suspects were unfounded. Isa Chiruma rejected a report published by a regional human rights group Redak in January this year accusing Cameroon's military of gross abuses against Boko Haram suspects in its northern border with Nigeria's Bono State, strongholds of the terrorist group. He said 25 of the suspects the rights groups said were killed were simply found dead in a detention cell a day after they were arrested. In the early morning of December 28, 2014, after opening the premises where the suspect had been detained, it was noticed that 25 out of the 56 had died. The request forensic doctor expert perform autopsies on the corpses and order their burial. The burial was immediately ordered to avoid any further contamination. Chiruma said the government of Cameroon had opened investigations and arrested a senior military official he refused to name. While waiting for more clarification, the commander who was on command at the time of the incident has been sacked 
and handed over to competent court for further investigations. The communication boss strongly defended the country's military, saying that they are well trained to handle such cases and have been told never to abuse rights of people, even in situations of war. You now understand why it is important for us, in the first place, to emphatically and categorically denounce this ill-fated allegation, and secondly, to bring back the truth of facts in this sensitive context where the national community works together with the international community to definitely eradicate the dreadful threat represented by this barbaric sect Boko Haram. In fact, bandits of Boko Haram terrorist group were perniciously used to infiltrate within the population to attack civil and military convoys. They repeatedly killed peaceful citizens, brazed down their villages, and each time carried along hundreds of cows belonging to the farmers of the region. Redak said in his report that Cameroon's military intimidated and tortured suspects to obtain information and that 50 prisoners were suffocated. Cameroon, Chad and Nigerian soldiers early this year launched a three-nation offensive against Boko Haram fighting to create an Islamist caliphate. Non-governmental organizations and civilians complained innocent people were either killed or arrested. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. It is exactly 8.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Five opposition parties in Lesotho have formed a new coalition government after recent elections failed to produce an outright winner. The poll was intended to ease tensions after an attempted coup last August, while the new leaders say this could see the end of Lesotho's socio-economic problems. Analysts and observers disagree. The Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa last week held a panel discussion in Johannesburg to discuss what this coalition could mean for the country. Channel Africa's Khumutso Mopulani reports. Even though politicians showed a level of maturity during and post-elections, Lesotho still faces underlying unresolved issues that triggered last year's crisis. The country urgently needs institutional reforms which clearly articulate the role of the police and the army and the role of the opposition in parliament. But the coalition partners would need a two-thirds majority to amend the constitution, which is unlikely given the strong opposition they face from the party of the outgoing prime minister. Lesotho may be a small country of just over 2 million people, but it is closely watched by South Africa as it produces water for the region's economic hub, which cannot afford further political instability. Observers and analysts say Lesotho's new government could fail again if political parties don't work together. More from Dr. Mutlamele Anthony Kappa, Senior Lecturer and Head of the Department of the Political and Administrative Studies at the National University of Lesotho. You see now these guys are under a lot of pressure because constitutional. 
They are supposed to have agreed and the government should have been formed 14 days from the day of the formal announcement of results. So they are under a lot of pressure now to try to negotiate. You can imagine now when we have seven parties, all of them except PLT have gotten one seat in parliament. How do you negotiate with one person who will be making demands on you to say, give me this ministerial post, give me that one, give me that? And then you need a lot of time to convince these guys that no, surely it cannot work, I have my own people here. So that transitional period has to be extended to allow parties to negotiate because we will forever, uh, as I can see, keep having coalition governments. Dr. Kappa says having failed to get stability with three parties, analysts are yet to see how Musisidi will manage the coalition of seven parties. Uh, the other one is the MNP itself. In this mixed member proportional election. We thought it was uh, something wonderful. It was an innovation that had to be emulated. Yes, it, it still is. But it has also shown us that it has some, some flaws. It has opened the doors too, 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 too wide. How do you have a situation where somebody with, who has been elected in his own constituency by 17 votes and then nationally gets just around what, two, three thousand? Now we can begin to take terms as to how government should be formed. I think we should, uh, we should look at that and try to say, okay, maybe introduce a threshold to say a party that should go to parliament should at least have about 2% of the national vote, maybe, or something like that. Uh, so that we, we, we address this. If we could have done that, we wouldn't be having a problem of forming a government. We wouldn't be having a problem of having... They have not even formalized that, finalized that yet. They are struggling, I think. They just can't tell us. They are struggling to convince all these guys that their demands are ridiculous. Dikara Rabele is a program coordinator at the Human Rights Institute of South Africa. She says Lesotho, like other countries, is afflicted by lack of intra-party democracy. Lesotho, like many other African countries, is stuck with the succession crisis, the internal political party succession plans. Why would the DC bring back former Prime Minister Musisidi when he is supposed to have handed over power in 2012? And even if it was the same DC, why couldn't they pick someone and be the, the prime minister? It's again the bread and butter issues. Mississippi is now feeling the cold. Or, I don't know why he, he should be feeling the cold because he's supposed to be getting some good package. But these are some of the issues we, we, we see across the continent. Look at ZANO-PF. It, it's a crisis. Who's going to take over from Mugabe? Look, we cannot afford to recycle the leaders. Give us younger people within the same parties. Let's have other people uh, uh, taking over. That was the Clara Program Coordinator at the Human Rights Institute of South Africa. And for Channel Africa, I'm Komutu Mupulane in Johannesburg. Negotiating teams from the U.S. and Iran are in Switzerland for crucial talks to try to secure a deal over Iran's nuclear program. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry met with Iran's Foreign Minister Mohammad Yavad Zarif with talks expected to run into the week. The deadline for a solution is just weeks away. Dan Whitehead reports from Lucerne. Armed police guard the five-star hotel close to Lake Geneva where these talks are taking place. 18 months of tense negotiations have come down to these meetings with the deadline just weeks away. The U.S. wants to finally close in on a deal to reduce Tehran's nuclear capabilities. But analysts say there is no certainty a deal will be struck. Matthew Moran is from King's College, London. Given the pressure on both sides, uh, I think that 
the opportunity to to secure an agreement is better uh, than it has been before. But equally, if it doesn't come about, we could see things start to unravel um, after after June. Iran wants sanctions imposed on the country, which cost its economy up to $8 billion a month, lifted. But it also wants to maintain some nuclear capabilities for civilian purposes. John Kerry says there are still important gaps that need to be resolved, with the P5 plus one group of countries insisting intrusive checks on Iran's nuclear stockpiles must be allowed. Completing a trip to Egypt before arriving in Lausanne, Mr. Kerry emphasized how time is running out. As you all know, we have set the end of the month uh, as the deadline. Uh, and so we will be going into this understanding that time is critical. Uh, I can't tell you whether or not uh, we can get a deal or whether we're close. Iran's Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif will meet EU counterparts on Monday in Brussels, with the talks potentially lasting well into the week in Switzerland. There is intense pressure from both sides for a result during the talks, finding common ground on allowing Iran to still have some civilian nuclear technology could be the key to securing a successful deal. Dan Whitehead, Lausanne, Switzerland. Humble, dedicated and a hard worker, these are some of the descriptions for the late South African Public Service and Administration Minister Collins Chabane. Government has described his death as a great loss for the country. Chabane died when a car he was travelling in collided with a truck on the N1 between the city of Bulukwane and Mokopane in the Limpopo province. Two bodyguards who were accompanying him also died. Tributes continue pouring in for the 55-year-old Emos Pajo has more. Minister in the presidency Jeff Radebe says Chabani was humble, disciplined, passionate and a dedicated member of cabinet. He says he was truly devoted to his work of improving the lives of people, especially the poor. He was an intellectual giant with a great understanding of what we had to do to free our people from poverty. Minister Chabane was a humble person who would never put himself for anything forward, as he often said, and I quote, if I'm doing something good, people will be the ones to tell, close quotes. He dedicated his life to liberate the people of South Africa from the evil system of apartheid. Even in democracy, he continued to play a central role in ensuring that the lives of all of our people are improved for the better and that they enjoy the fruits of our democracy and freedom. Chabani was responsible for the establishment of the performance monitoring and evaluation function in the presidency. This included performance agreements with ministers. He died returning from a funeral of a local chief, Samuel Magona of Malamulele, in his home village in Limpopo. We are informed that the minister's vehicle was traveling from N1 northerly direction towards southerly direction. A truck which was also driving in the same direction on the left lane in front decided to make a U-turn. It was at this point that the minister's vehicle drove on the truck which was in the minister's lane. As we know, the driver of the truck has since been arrested for negligent driving. 
Khadebe could not be drawn on reports that the truck driver was drunk and has two convictions of reckless and negligent driving. He extended condolences to Chabanes and his bodyguards' families. We wish the Chabane, Letswane, second families strength and courage during this dark moment as they attempt to come to terms with this tragic loss. Minister Chabane, as a dedicated and serving member of the cabinet, will be accorded a special official funeral, details of which will be communicated at a later stage. Meanwhile, ANC spokesperson Zizi Kodwa says the ruling party has lost one of its most loyal members. One of the distinct features about him was the most disciplined. He could carry any responsibility given by the organization. That's why we called him an all-rounder. Uh, we will miss his great love for music, great love for arts. But he was a dependable comrade. You could trust him. And I'm sure our government deployed him in different portfolios. And he excelled. He did everything with high excellency. But above all, he was very humble. And I think we will miss that humbleness, where these days very few people who are given responsibilities, they remain humble. Opposition parties are also saddened by Shabani's death. Freedom Front Plus leader Dr. Corne Mulder says he will always be remembered for his love for the people, the country, and his work in government. I worked with Mr. Shabani for five years when I was a deputy minister in the cabinet, and I experienced him as a very likable person. He had a very good sense of humor, and we shared quite a lot of jokes together. And he's a good musician, interesting enough, in his, in his spare time. And I think the important part, as I experienced, is he brought the evaluation system to cabinet. And that is a system which ministers are being evaluated to what extent they achieve their goals. And I really thought that was a very important contribution to get better service delivery. And I think that will always be remembered. UDM leader Bantu Holomisa agrees that Chabani was a hard worker. One can confirm that Collins was an officer and a gentleman, a political commissar par excellence. I worked with him in the ANC. He was a very knowledgeable person. May his soul rest in peace. Congress of the People leader Musiwa Lukota was imprisoned on Robben Island with Chabani during the struggle for liberation when he was still a member of the ANC. Some of us uh, served time with him both on Robben Island. We worked together in organization outside of prison, in, uh, especially in the province of Limpopo where he uh, he came from. He was a very uh, humble person. He was a team worker and uh, he was very consistent. Government says President Jacob Zuma will make an announcement soon on who will replace Chabani. Details of his special funeral will be announced in coming days. I'm Amos Paro in Pretoria. On the 17th and 18th of this month, join Channel Africa as we bring you live broadcasts on the second annual public-private dialogue forum on infrastructure projects held at the Hayat Hotel, Rosebank, South Africa. The summit will discuss the mechanisms, successes and failures of local and international economic development initiatives in order to make recommendations of how to adapt them to benefit the broader African community. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A struggle veteran and former longest serving South African Communist Party Secretary General Moses Godane was praised and described as a person many will emulate. All the praises were echoed at his reburial which was held in his birthplace of Pela village in the country's northwest province over the weekend. Gotane died in Russia in 1978 after suffering from a stroke and his mortal remains were repatriated to his country earlier this month. Patrick Dintua has more. Moses Gotane was given an official funeral in honor of his contribution to the struggle for liberation of this country. The funeral service was attended by President Jacob Zuma, his deputy Cyril Ramaphosa, former deputy President Kalema Mutante, a number of ministers, diplomats and other politicians. During his keynote address, President Zuma said, the history about the life and times of Moses Kotani should serve as an inspiration for young people who have ambitions to lead. Zuma says Kotane was a well-rounded intellectual and was dedicated to the liberation struggle. Through him, we want to inspire our youth in particular to read, work hard, and rise through the leadership of organizations, through the ranks, through commitment, dedication, and hard work. In that day, Kotane was an avid reader whose thirst for knowledge and him a fond place in the hearts and minds of the leadership of our movement at the time. ANC Secretary-General Gwede Mantashe, who was amongst the people attending the ceremony, described Kotane as a man of integrity. One of the attributes of Moses Kotane is integrity. He's a man who wouldn't talk behind your back, who would never do things to undermine you. He was incorruptible in political life and in personal life, but he was never dishonest. SACP Secretary-General Blayton Zimande had this to say when explaining the character of Moses Kotani. The late Moses Kotani was uh, an exemplary person. Many of the things today that have kept us going as an alliance were things that were built by them. For instance, how best to serve more than one organization in an alliance by being loyal to, its, to the decisions of both those organizations. Former Director General in the office of former President Tabombeki, Reverend Frank Chikani, says he has a high respect for Kotani. You know that Montate Kotani were here before Runa. They are old, but we have read about their history, we have heard about it. And the more you read about it, you know that this man was an extraordinary man. And that's why I respect him so much. And I'm pleased that his remains have been brought home so that this community can know that they have got a hero amongst them. 
Northwest Premier Suprama Humapelo was amongst those who paid tribute to Moses Kotani. He had this to say. I just hope that, that in the schools we can teach young people about Moses Kotani so that the value system which informed his approach to life can be embraced by everybody. And we can only do that if we learn from how we approach life in general. Moses Kotani's son, Sam, has on behalf of his family thanked President Zuma and his government for the repatriation and reburial of his father's remains. Our family, beginning with our Rebecca Kotani, wife of Moses, are eternally grateful to President Jacob Zuma and the government of South Africa for undertaking this repatriation and reburial project. To the provincial government of the Northwest Province, under the leadership of a Premier Mahumapelo, the Moses Kotani Municipality, the Tribal Authority of Tamprustat, Rilebohilebahaits. Some of the residents in Pella village say the reburial of the remains of Kotani in their area might put their area on the map. They also believe that their village will now develop. We feel very much honored that at least our village is remembered. Indeed, we are proud of Mr. Moses Kotani. We were even thinking that we are forgotten here in Pella. We hope there will be development now in our area. Like better roads, our children will get better education. And also hope there will be respect from the youth. That is what we are asking for. Moses Kotani's remains have been laid to rest at a gravesite erected next to his house where a monument has also been built. I'm Patrick Dintwa in Pella in the northwest. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning. At least 45 villagers have been killed during an early morning raid by a suspected herdsman in Nigeria's eastern central Benue state. Gunmen believed to be from the militant group Al-Shabaab kill one person and severely wounds three others in the northern county of Mendera in Kenya. And militants loyal to Islamic State claim responsibility for a bomb attack on a police checkpoint in the Libyan capital Tripoli in a series of attacks in the capital. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And going back in time to today in 1984, President Samora Machel of Mozambique and Prime Minister P.W. Bota of South Africa signed the Ngomati Accord, a non-aggression and good neighborliness pact on the border between the two countries. Prime Minister Bota spoke shortly after signing the accord. Our action today in signing this treaty, the Accord of Ngomati, sets a new course in the history of Southern Africa. We have signaled to the world our belief that states with different socio-economic and political systems can live together in peace and harmony and work together in the pursuit of common interests. Our meeting today on the border between our two countries indicates our willingness and our ability 
to reach peaceful accords which enshrine our commitment to the principles of good neighborliness. Another principle that underlies the agreement we have signed today is that each country has the right to order its affairs at its seen fit and that interstate relations, particularly between neighbors, should not be disturbed by differences in internal policies. And that was former South African Prime Minister and President P.W. Borter speaking on this day in 1984. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, UNISDR, estimates that over $300 billion is lost every year as a result of natural disasters across the world. The organization says this loss is mostly incurred in poor communities who have little or no resources to mitigate and reduce the risk of disasters. At the official opening of the Third World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction in the city of Sendai in Japan over the weekend, Secretary General of the UN Ban Ki-moon called for international solidarity in response to the needs of poor, disaster-prone communities. Selina Dubong reports from Sendai. The recent flooding in a number of countries in southern Africa, the river basin floods and cyclones in India and Japan, and the Ludian earthquake in China serve as examples of the extent of the economic blow countries can incur if caught unprepared. Of course, natural disasters are unstoppable, but the risk of the disaster that affects other aspects of life can be mitigated through proper disaster risk reduction efforts. In Mozambique, for example, flooding caused by extremely heavy rains in January this year surpassed the government's capacity to respond to the emergency with the means and resources planned in the 2014 2015 National Contingency Plan for the rainy season. The floods, according to information released by Relief Web, affected 160,000 people and killed 158. 65,000 hectares of crops were washed away, placing about 65,000 families at risk of food insecurity. Adequate resource allocation in this instance would have played a major role in saving lives and livelihoods. The Secretary Secretary General of the United Nations Ban Ki-moon has called for a cause of action in places such as these and many others that are prone and affected by disasters. We must respond to the world's growing needs by empowering individuals, supporting communities and backing promises with resources. We must especially help the poorest and most vulnerable people. Nine out of ten Disaster fatalities are in low- and middle-income countries. Those states need our special attention. 
In 2005, a guideline was developed to guide efforts on disaster risk reduction in the period between 2005 and 2015. Between then and today, lessons have been drawn on how disasters and their risks can be reduced. The Hyogo Framework for Action was the first plan to explain, describe and detail the work that is required from all different sectors and actors to reduce disaster losses. It was developed in a on with the many partners needed to reduce disaster risk, that is government, international agencies, disaster experts and many others, bringing them into a common system of coordination. The conference currently underway in Japan is expected to now pave the way forward for another 10 years on how countries should move forward by means of an adoption of another framework. The Secretary General explains. Disasters during, at least during the last uh, uh, 10 years, we have to analyze and learn the lessons of what had happened and how international community uh, had been uh, responding. There are gaps uh, and there are lessons to learn. Uh, all these lessons uh, should be uh, included uh, into a uh, framework uh, agreement uh, in uh, Sendai. Complementing the work done by the United Nations and other organizations are ordinary people themselves all over the world. There is a boom of communities coming together and engaging on how they can reduce the risk of disasters. Regina Pritchett, global organizer for the Community Resilience Land and Housing Campaign for an NGO known as the Harao Commission, says grassroots women and men are mobilizing movements and civil society organizations are creating momentum in mitigating the risk of disasters and also disseminating information to the general public. In this line of work, I work with networks of grassroots women's movements who are doing resilience building activities, recovery and reconstruction. I see women in Uganda making energy efficient charcoal from banana peels. I see rural women in Kenya building biogas tanks and stoves to power their homes. I see grassroots women in Central America working across their communities and working across even countries to partner with the UNISDR regional office to train mayors on resilient cities and how to work with their local communities. I go to work every day with some of the most powerful women in the world that are leading movements of 50,000 people in Zambia, 100,000 women's groups in India and national federations of the poor in the Philippines. Our question to you is what are communities organized to do in your country. Meanwhile, the United Nations Secretary General commended the Japanese government for pledging about 4 billion US dollars to support the implementation of the Sendai Cooperation Initiative for Disaster Risk Reduction over the next four years. The package is expected to focus on the development of disaster-proof infrastructure, the promotion of global and regional cooperation, and the training of 40,000 government officials and local leaders to play a leading role in national efforts for disaster risk reduction. Reporting for Channel Africa in Sendai, Japan, I am Selina Ntobong. Now this morning we ask you, how prepared is the African continent for disasters? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. 
How prepared is the African continent for disasters? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In an effort to accelerate consumer justice to the residents of South Africa's Gauteng province, last Friday saw the relaunch of the Consumer Affairs Court. The courts were relaunched ahead of World Consumer Day, which was commemorated yesterday. Their primary mandate is to receive, hear and adjudicate over disputes arising between consumers and businesses in the Gauteng province in matters concerning the sale of goods or rendering of services by such businesses to consumers. Ntlantlamatlangu has more. The Gauteng Consumer Affairs Court's relaunch comes after a few years of the court's inactivity due to delays in appointing members and the low levels of referrals to the court on account of high resolution levels in the office. Authorities say the court will give consumers an opportunity to have their complaints heard. In addition, the hearings will also provide a platform for the court to educate consumers and stakeholders about their basic consumer rights and responsibilities. Speaking at the launch, the Chief Director for Consumer Affairs and Business Compliance at the Gauteng Department of Economic Development, Advocate Fani Manamela, said they want to accelerate consumer justice to the public. We are reinventing ourselves. We are recommitting. We are accelerating consumer justice to the members of the public of this uh, beautiful province. So as I've indicated, we'll be uh, going out and you know take up cases. We have a consumer affairs office on wheels, which would actually create some kind of work to actually prepare members of the public to actually lodge complaints, which would, if are not being resolved through, you know, negotiations and mediation, would actually be, you know, referred to the consumer affairs court for adjudication. The chairperson of the consumer affairs court, Professor Riette Duplessis, says the courts will follow procedures of an ordinary court. The orders that the court can make is to return, if there was an unfair business practice, the court can ask for the money, for instance, for the money to be returned to the consumer. This court can also award damages. The court can summons witnesses to come to court. If they do not come, it could be uh, regarded as a criminal offence. We can award costs and we can order our orders, we can issue orders, and if there's a non-compliance with those orders, that would also be a criminal offence. The Gauden Consumer Court was relaunched ahead of World Consumer Rights Day, which was commemorated yesterday. The day is celebrated worldwide to champion the cause of consumers and demand for policy and regulatory environment to protect consumers and to address issues affecting consumer rights and safety. World Consumer Rights Day was first observed on the 15th of March in 1983 and has since become an important occasion for mobilizing citizen action. It is also an opportunity to promote the basic rights of all consumers for demanding that those rights are respected and protected and for protesting the market abuses and social injustices which undermine them. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Glantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. 
A meeting of a square kilometre array organisation board of directors has agreed to move the world's largest telescope forward to its final pre-construction phase. Dr. Bernie Fanaroff, a project director of South Africa's square kilometre array, says the design of the 650 euros first phase of the project is now defined, consisting of two complementary world-class instruments, one in Australia, one in South Africa, and both expecting to deliver exciting and transformational science. Dr. Fanaroff spoke to Wandile Kalipa. The square kilometre array will be built in two phases. The first phase will start construction in 2018, and we've been busy with the design of that. And the second phase will start construction in 2023. So the first phase is going to be built partly in South Africa, partly in Australia. And what the SKA board was discussing was how are we going to build it to come within the cost of 650 million euros for the construction. So the decision the board took was how we can design the telescope so that we come within that cost of 650 million euros, but we don't lose any of the science that we want to do with it. So the board has now agreed on what that design will be, and now we can start working on the detailed design and then the construction. So with a phase one telescope, the astronomers will be able to look very far into the universe, and they'll be able to start seeing how the universe changed from when it was very young, how the first galaxies formed, how clusters of galaxies formed. They'll be able to detect more pulsars and start looking for gravitational waves and so on. Then, obviously, when we build phase two, which will be a much bigger telescope, then we'll be able to look really far back into the universe to even before the first stars and galaxies formed. Now, Doctor, the material that is going to be used for building these telescopes, is it locally sourced or is it coming from other areas of the globe? Well, it will be a mixture. So all of the countries which are members of the SKA organization, that's 11 countries, they all want to get some contracts for their own industries. So there will be a procurement process where all the countries and their industries will be able to bid for the different parts of the telescope and the infrastructure and so on. And obviously South African companies will be included in that. And that was Dr. Bernie Fanaroff, Project Director of South Africa's Square Kilometre Array, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. An investment conference which Egyptian authorities have been promoting as key to reviving the battered economy ended yesterday after deals potentially worth the tens of billions of dollars were signed. Dumelo Zulu reports. Prime Minister Ibrahim Makhleb said arrangements had been signed for investments worth some $36 billion over the course of the three-day event. A jubilant President Abdel Fattah Aziz told delegates that the event would be repeated annually. Aziz called young conference staff to the podium to stand around him as he delivered his second speech at the conference. They took selfies with the president and screamed in delight, then joined in chants of Long Live Egypt and repeated cheering. But Al-Aziz broke off the chant of Long Live Al-Aziz, saying Long Live Egypt and nothing else. Hmm. 
Meanwhile, Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, says that the country needs two to three billion dollars to develop. Egypt, with a population of about 90 million, has been hit hard by economic and political upheaval since an uprising that toppled long-time leader Hosni Mubarak four years ago. Investment shriveled to tourism dwindled as did the currency reserves. An initiative has been launched to help improve smallholder farmers to access a wider array of modern and productive food crop varieties. The African Seed Access Index monitors the state of the continent's seed sector and highlights the problems that prevent seeds reaching farmers. Organizers hope the scheme will shake off for decades of complacent government seed monopolies. Uganda, Zimbabwe, South Africa and Kenya are featured in the first assessment. Botswana's acting minister of agriculture, Patrick Raluzia, has criticized agricultural officers stationed in the northeast district for frustrating the integrated support program for arable agricultural development. Raluzia says some members of the public have complained of lazy and uncommitted civil servants and they're now frustrating government efforts. Raluzia charged that the agricultural officers have a tendency of making phone calls that are not a part of their work while clients wait to be assisted. The Zambia State Insurance Corporation has introduced a new product in the construction sector called Non-Collateralized Bond. The insurance company says it has come up with the Non-Collateralized Bond to help Zambia's contractors to participate in the construction of infrastructure in the country without having to produce collateral. It has noted that the Zambian government had made a deliberate plan to improve infrastructure. Hence, the Zambia State Insurance Corporation is responding to that by helping local contractors to borrow without having to produce a bond. Indicators at the Sawa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance is 8.49 Central African time. The U.S. dollar trades at 12.46 South African rands, 9.96 Botswana Pula, 7.28 in Zambia, 0.67 British pound, 9.5 across the euro, platinum, 1.16 dollars, platinum or rather gold, 1.157 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil, 5.4 dollars, 2.7 cents a barrel. That's an economic update to come live to you from South Africa in Johannesburg, we're in Auckland Park. Up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. South Africa's premiership side, Mamelodi Sundowns, will carry a slender lead when they head to Lubumbashi for the second leg of the CAF Champions League campaign in three weeks' time. After Kamabilat snatched a crucial goal to give the Pretoria side a 1-0 victory over Tipi Mazembe of DR Congo at Loftus First Field. Sundowns coach Peter Misumani feels his team did enough and were in control of the game given the strength of the Central African opponent. The visitors were reduced to 10 men three minutes before halftime after Chongo Kabaso was given his marching orders for a reckless tackle on Anthony Lafour. 
Peter Musumane then made two tactical changes in the second half, bringing in Tiko Modise and Asavela Mbegide for Wagane Zungu and Sianda Zwane, respectively. On to athletics, defending champion Thomas Ayeko of Uganda defeated a strong pair of Kenyan runners to retain the international cross-country title in Northern Ireland. On the same day over the weekend, Kenyan superstar David Rudisha won his first race of the season at the Sydney Classic in Australia. Our correspondent, Gesham Nyati, reports. Thomas Ayeko won the 10-kilometer cross-country event down under in Australia for the second time in a row. He clocked 31 minutes 27 seconds. The Ugandan lifted the pace in the last kilometer to drop Edwin Soy, a 2008 Olympic Games 5000 meters bronze medalist who finished 13 seconds behind. Jonathan Ndigu, a former world junior 3000 meters steeplechase champion, came home in third position. Ayeko, the winner of the race, is one of Uganda's talented athletes who has the potential to win a major event in the future if he works hard and harder. The women's 7.2-kilometer cross-country was won by Fente Alemo of Ethiopia in 24 minutes 12 seconds. She beat top British athlete Stephanie Twail into second position, while another Ethiopian, Bitukani Adam, finished in third position. In two weeks' time, top African cross-country runners will compete at the World Cross-Country Championships in China. Meanwhile, David Rudisha had an impressive start of the season winning the 800-meter race at the Sydney Classic in Australia. Rudisha, an Olympic champion and world record holder, recorded a time of 1 minute 45.01 second. Alex Rowe of Australia, who chased behind and well supported by the home crowd, was by far no match to the Kenyan superstar. Geshom Nyati, Channel Africa Sports, London. And in rugby, New Zealand's rugby side Chiefs coach Dave Rennie says beating the South Africa Stormers is indeed a good result for the team, but that they had to work hard to earn the victory. Rennie says his team's ability to play a tighter game in the second half and showed them the win. And finally with golf news, George Gutierrez has won the Tswane Open and as such qualifies for this week's Investor Cup. Gutier will join Charles Schwartel and the other top 30 players on the rankings for a shot at the $822,000 bonus pool. Michael Flissmas reports. On the Pretoria Country Club course, where he won his first tournament as a 10-year-old, George Kutsia claimed his second European Tour victory in the Chwani Open on Sunday. Kutsia closed with a 65 to win by a shot on 14-under and edge out Jacques Blau, who charged through the field with a closing 61. Kutsia now qualifies for this week's Investec Cup on the Sunshine Tour, where Charles Schwarzel will also join the top 30 players competing for the 10 million rand bonus pool. But for now... Kutsia is enjoying his fairy tale victory. Obviously, playing on my home course and uh, winning this, I mean, I never thought as a kid that I'd play a European tour event at, at my home club, Pretoria Country Club, and uh, I mean, it's just unreal. Michael Flissmas, Pretoria. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.
Recapping our top stories on Africa rise and shine at this hour. Cameroon denies executing Boko Haram suspects. Iran nuclear talks set to resume in Switzerland. And tributes pour in for the late South African minister, Collins Chabane. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza and Elizabeth Ledicha, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our folding news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Salif Keta with the track titled Nyanyama. Jamana ke wale fe, ke la ke.